My next uh, speaker before lunch is uh, Dharma Shah. Uh, many of you will know him um, from his uh, awesome blog on startups.com, uh, which now has a Q&A section called answers.onstartups.com, which is a part of the Stack Exchange network, so it's all one big, beautiful, uh, overlapping thing. He's the uh, uh, co-founder and CTO, I think, of uh, HubSpot, which he told me uh, where he manages nobody, yes. uh, but provides a great deal of leadership. And uh, uh, has, uh, this is, I think, his third company. Um, so uh, please welcome Dharma Shah. All right. How's everybody doing? Are you holding up? Um, so you just got done watching uh, Seth and David, who are both exceptional speakers, very organized, have this cohesive train of thought. They have a message. They have structure. Uh, I have none of those things. Um, so. I'm a, a hacker by trade. By the way, who, who's heard me speak before at a business of software conference? Watch the video, okay, a bunch of you. Uh, I've gotten a little bit better, uh, but not very different. The material's all different, by the way. Um, I'll try and speak a little bit slower. Well, actually, there's, well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, I'm gonna talk about building software businesses. Um, and I put this disclaimer up every time I speak, which is um, I write code every night. I'm a hacker, I don't speak professionally for a living. Um, so be gentle. If you have questions, by the way, along the way, feel free to ask them. Uh, one of the upsides to me not having like a consistent train of thought is that you can't interrupt it. Um, so <laughs> like, just raise your hand and try and get my attention, jump up and down or something if you want, just double click on one of the slides and we can uh, dive in. Decide. I picked things out of um, the last year's worth of experience based on um, what I thought would be interesting and that's non-obvious. At least it was non-obvious to me over the course of the last year. Um, so. New material, looking back, just one quick thing, uh, two quick things. Uh, so last year I launched my book about marketing um, and you guys helped propel it, did really well. It's still doing very well, number seven out of, not that I'm counting how many marketing books I actually wrote a script that does that um, and tracks my rankings hourly. Um, so I don't have to do it myself. But anyways, thank you for all of you uh, that bought it. Uh, and I'm expecting my first child in January, my uh, new startup venture, hopefully it required less capital. Um, uh, as Joel mentioned, I write a blog. Lots of you read it, I think. Um, and HubSpot is the company, this is my third startup, and a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about actually comes out of HubSpot for a couple of reasons. Not, we didn't invent the stuff, um, and one of the dangers of speaking and, and um, talking about software businesses and startups generally is most people, including me, um, extrapolate from a data point of one. Uh, which is, oh yeah, well, this is how it worked, and boy, isn't that great, and I'll share with you that data point of one in terms of stuff that worked for us, but at least it's better than extrapolating from a data point of zero, right? So we've actually tried this stuff, um, and, and we kind of know what has worked for us or not, and uh, use what works for you. Um, I put this slide up here, uh, A to brag. Um, this is the customer growth chart, and if you notice, like back in 07, um, you know, we were kind of flattish, just getting started. That's when I first spoke at Business Software. This is my third year in a row. And clearly, my presence at Business Software is doing really well for the business. Um, so it's hope to get invited, um, invited back. And this is customer growth, by the way. Uh, the revenue growth ramp is steeper because uh, revenue per customer is growing, and we'll talk about that as far as uh, metrics. I don't want to talk about HubSpot, the company, and what we sell because I'm not a salesperson. I don't sell things. Uh, we're going to talk about the business. Uh, one thing that's interesting about HubSpot is um, of the first nine people on the exec team, uh, all of which are still there, uh, or still here, uh, somewhere, um, 
their MBAs, including me, including my co-founder, including our VP of engineering, including our VP of sales, all the way on through. And so one would think that we were like doomed to failure from the beginning with that many MBAs uh, sitting in a single startup. Um, and we've managed so far uh, not to screw it up. And we'll talk about, uh, talk about that. All right, um, and as I mentioned, all this stuff does not come from us. Uh, HubSpot, one of the things I love about working at the company, one of the things I love about the team, is uh, we're students of the game. Uh, so we know we haven't quite got it figured out. We know there's gonna be plenty of opportunity to screw it up, so we like to talk to as many smart people that will give us the time. Uh, these are just some of them. There are lots of smart companies in the world. These are folks that I've actually like, consumed copious amounts of alcohol with or sat for multiple hours. Um, and gotten a chance to tap their brain. Um, and I'll talk about Drew from Dropbox because he's the one I consumed alcohol with most recently um, and was influential. So, By the way, how many people use Dropbox? I'm just curious. It's like, I, great. Um, so one of the things that's interesting to me, and this is one of the things that really appeals to me, this is my favorite conference, I've said that uh, publicly many, many times, is because it's about the software business. And the operative word there being both software, obviously, uh, and the fact that it's a business, that we are trying to build businesses, not do interesting projects, not, these are businesses. And, and it's okay to talk about revenues and profits and margins and customers and product and those kinds of things as a business. Um, so I'm gonna spend a very brief amount of time because I get this question every now and then um, about venture capital. So HubSpot has raised $33 million of venture capital um, in our last four years. Uh, and it's my first company raising venture capital. I've been a self-funded, bootstrapped startup entrepreneur uh, and blogged a ton about why you shouldn't raise venture capital. Uh, not because it's evil, which I don't think it is, um, but I don't think it's necessary for most of you. So if you're a first-time entrepreneur, I'm gonna leave this message um, and we can definitely chat about it over a beer tonight or something like that in terms of when's uh, the time to raise it or not raise it. Uh, but the key here is that it's not necessary. Like too many entrepreneurs get started, it's like I'm building this software business, here's what I wanna do, and the first thing I'm gonna go do is write a business plan or a PowerPoint deck or do something and then go off and try and raise capital. Uh, that's a mistake. Because as soon as you try and do that, um, you essentially you shift your mode from solving a customer's problem or an industry's problem into solving the investor's problem. And those are not the same problem. Investors have a very different set of problems that they're trying to solve. So my, if you can avoid it, uh, don't raise capital too early on, especially if you're a first-time entrepreneur. There's like, we can talk about an hour for just that. Um, and whatever capital you raise, make sure it fits. There's a reason why HubSpot, we like to believe, and it's, um, I'm actually, I've gotten really good at the rationalization now because I've told the story enough times, um, but there's a reason we've raised it. Uh, so quick question for you guys, how much money do you think? So we looked at all the publicly traded software as a service businesses. So Constant Contact, Log Me In, Success Factors, NetSuite, all of them. These are software businesses hosted software, multi-tenant, doing smart things. Uh, they went public, so they're obviously uh, relatively successful, um, had an exit. Um, and you would think, so like back in the day, I would have thought, okay, well, why does a software business, like when I first, you know, did my, when I did HubSpot, it's like, okay, well, we raise a million dollars of angel capital. And my, I'm like, my God, I have no idea how we're gonna spend a million dollars of capital because it's just the two of us. Like what would, like why does software require that much? It's like, okay, well, that's great. We'll just make this last two years and we'll see if the business goes. Then we raised another five, another 12, and then all the way up onto 33. And the reason is, um, for those of you that are in the SaaS business, this is actually relatively interesting, is that it takes a fair amount of capital. The answer, by the way, is $42 million median raise pre-IPO, if you look at, not average, the median, um, across all the publicly traded SaaS companies. So all these SaaS companies raised a ton of money. And the reason is, and the question is, well, why would they do that? And the answer is because it takes 
for a SaaS company specifically, uh, software as a service where you have a subscription-based model, it takes a fair amount of capital to acquire customers. And the faster you're growing, so the ones that raise the most in terms of, um, and the fastest was Salesforce.com, and their growth curve is um, steeper than HubSpot's. It's actually the only publicly traded company that's steeper than uh, HubSpot's, which I'm proud of. But um, So it takes money to kind of grow these SaaS businesses because, and this is very simple, it took me a couple of years, despite an MBA, to figure this out, which is when you're doing a subscription-based model, you're, you're incurring all your acquisition costs to get the customer, sales and marketing and everything, up front. And then they pay you over time, usually on a monthly basis, even if it's an on annual basis. Usually your lifespan for a customer should be, let's say, four to five years is the expected lifespan of a, of a SaaS customer if you're doing things right. Um, so the reality is you spend all the money up front and then the revenue comes in over time. So essentially what you're doing as a SaaS company is a form of customer financing. And oddly, the faster you're growing, the more customers you're signing up, the more capital you will consume fueling that growth. Um, so that's one non-obvious thing that kind of occurred to us um, along the way. Uh, there's an investment firm out on the West Coast called Pacific Crest that did some research that says, okay, across, I think it's about 78 privately held software companies. How much money did it take um, to get to specific points of growth? And then how much money did they expect to take uh, before they got to cash flow break even, essentially? Uh, and this is... And I, this is, once again, extrapolating from a data point. It's about right-ish. Um, so if some of you, I mean, I'm sure lots of you have gotten to like, better levels of revenue without raising uh, this kind of money, but this feels about right um, as a rule of thumb. There's a, it's a great report, by the way. We can talk more about other, other numbers from that. So I'm going to set the tone for some of the things that, by the way, it takes me like 10 minutes to get warmed up, so I put a lot of the fluffy stuff um, up front, and then, um, then I can uh, dig deeper into it. So I'm going to go through just some very, very basic metrics. Some of this stuff you guys know or you've heard from me, uh, so I'm going to be very quick about it, but it sets the, the model for some of the things I want to talk about. One is uh, your cost, cost of customer acquisition, and this is your total marketing, which is sales and marketing dollars, divided by the number of customers you sold. So let's say you spent $50,000 on sales, and this is all in, right? So it's the sales person's salaries, marketing people's salaries, and marketing programs, all advertising, AdWords, everything, the website, all of it, divided by the number of customers sold, right? So let's say you spent $50,000, and you got 1,000 customers, your acquisition cost was $50. Um, so that's an important number to know in terms of what does it cost you to acquire a customer. Another important number, which we'll talk about, is the overall sales velocity. How many new customers are you selling month over month? And how is that trending? What's the second derivative on that? How's the growth going and uh, things like that? So we'll talk about that in terms of the way it plays in. Uh, the other number we need to know is the lifetime value of a customer. Um, the ARPU stands for the average revenue per user. So essentially, how much money do you make per customer? Let's say we're just talking about monthly businesses. Um, it applies equally well if you're talking annually. Uh, so let's say you're charging $100 a month um, and your average customer stays 50 months. Right, so you're gonna get the 50, 50 months worth of uh, customer times the $100 of revenue, which equates to you $5,000. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so that lifetime value is important and uh, the obvious one, which we're not gonna get into, is that your lifetime value should exceed your cost of customer acquisition. Right? So if like, the total money you will ever make on a customer does not exceed the amount of money it took you to get that customer, something is fundamentally wrong. Right? So, that, all right, so that one's obvious. So now let's get to the non-obvious stuff. Um, so one is the retention rate. So if you look at what causes a customer to have a lifetime value of X, there's two factors that go into it. How much money do you charge them per month or per whatever period, and how long do they stay? The how long do they stay part of the equation is around your retention rate. Of the customers that sign up, 
how often do they cancel? What's the cancellation rate or the churn rate? And this one's actually kind of subtle because different people measure retention rates in different ways. So one way you can measure your retention rate or the inverse of which is the churn rate, the cancellation rate. And we'll talk about churn rates because it's a little bit simpler. Let's say your churn rate is 3%. That means if you started your month with 100 customers, of those 100 customers, three of them will cancel on average, right? That's, your, that's a customer cancellation rate. Another way to measure it is revenue cancellation rate because different customers might pay you different amounts of money. So you might have going into it 100 customers and the, and the number of ones that cancel are the ones that were paying you the most, let's say, in which case your cancellation rate's higher than 3% even though 3% of your customers cancel. So on a revenue basis, your churn rate might be higher. And the last but very important piece is uh, what we're calling now, and lots of people are, is called discretionary churn. And discretionary churn essentially is the customers that canceled that actually had an option to cancel in the first place. So let's say you go into that month with 100 customers, but only 80 of them actually had the opportunity to cancel because some of them are in six-month contracts or 12-month contracts or whatever. So just the fact that you kept some of those you shouldn't get real credit for because they didn't have the option to leave. They didn't have the option to walk out the door. So the discretionary churn is really what you should be watching maniacally because that's the signal that tells you, are you doing something useful? Are people valuing it? Are they relatively happy or not? Um, so those are numbers that are extremely uh, good to know. And one of the non-obvious things we learned at HubSpot is the absence of churn or the absence of cancellation is not the same as the presence of delightedness. So even if they had the option to cancel, they could have hit that discretionary cancel button, I am out the door, this stuff sucks. Just because they didn't do it, it means they'll continue to pay you, which is great, but it does not necessarily mean they're delighted or they're happy. And your long-term success, tr low churn rates are absolutely important, but you need happy customers, otherwise life gets really hard very quickly. Uh, because the happy customers are the ones that you get kind of reference, you get word of mouth, and there's, I'm not going to talk about marketing, but it's um, extremely important. Um, so you should be measuring that stuff in terms of everything from, let's say you could do classic uh, customer sat surveys, you could do net promoter score, which is a simple two-question survey. You could some, put something in the product like Wufu does and say, are you happy? Like question mark right inside the product, and people can tell you, yes, I am happy. No, I am not happy. And, and measure that just to kind of get a sense for, just, so, just because they're using the product and they're in there doesn't necessarily mean they're happy. All right, everybody with me so far? All right. Um, so one of the things that was fascinating at HubSpot um, is that all these little tensions that exist within the company. We're 180 people now. We've grown really, really fast. I think it was about 100 uh, last time I spoke here. Um, and I'm going to talk about one of them. But there's all these little conflicting uh, forces where you pull on something and something else gives. So we're going to look at the three primary things we just talked about. Sales velocity. How many customers are you selling every month? Your acquisition costs on a per customer basis and the lifetime value. So let's say right now, hypothetically, um, and I'm, I'm gonna posit to you that in most cases, if you try and prove one, something else is going to suffer, all other things being relatively equal. So for instance, let's say we came in and said, you know what, we're not selling enough customers. We wanna drive sales velocity up. And we've done this at HubSpot. We do all sorts of crazy things at HubSpot. Um, and so we can go to the sales team and say, oh, by the way, uh, we are going to increase quota and goals by X percent. Let's try that, let's see what happens. And it works, um, as it turns out, it does work. Uh, but multiple bad things can happen. So let's say we do that, we say, okay, we're gonna sell 10% more, and let's say we wanna keep the acquisition cost, 
the same. That we're not going to spend any more for leads. We're not going to get any more better prospects in the door, better leads in the door. What will happen invariably is the lifetime value will go down because you will sign unhappy customers. You will. Because the salespeople said, oh, I've got to sell more. They're going to be more aggressive. They're going to do more arm twisting. And essentially, you're going to get less happy customers as an outcome of that process. So we can take any combination of these variables and say, oh, we're going to hold this constant. And let's say, for instance, in that same example, we want to grow sales velocity. Uh, but we also want to keep the same number of happy customers. We want to leave lifetime value the same. We don't want to uh, degenerate that. What happens then, the way you, you get solved in the organization, is your acquisition costs go up. Because what happens, like salespeople say, like, oh, we need more growth. That means we need more leads coming into the top of the funnel so we can cherry pick and sell the best customers. If you want to have happy customers, just give me 500 people to talk to instead of 400 people to talk to, and then I can sell more, essentially. Well, the reality is those additional leads are going to cost you money, so your acquisition cost goes up. So the moral of the story here is that in, in most cases, if you're not very, very careful, we're going to talk about that, is um, you will pull on something in the system. There's this great big system dynamics thing where you turn this knob or dial over here, and something semi-unexpected happens somewhere else. Um, and so the trick is, A, finding that balance. Um, and the balance is very tricky. And there's all these little mini subsystems within there. So this is just a sales marketing versus customer happiness versus acquisition cost. But we can take any two or three variables within the company. And what we found is that they're interrelated somehow. It's like there's some way we do something over here and something else happens over there. Uh, so you might be asking yourself, well, self, um, what do we do? Like, how do we, like, I want to improve sales and I want happier customers and we want to drive our acquisition costs down. And the uh, cliched but right answer is invest in not just the product, invest in the experience. And there's a very good reason for this, and it's semi-obvious, which is if you invest in the experience, everybody wins. It's easier for the salespeople to sell. It's a better product. It's a better experience. Customers are happier. Your lifetime value stays constant or goes up, right, because they're going to stay longer, because the experience is better. Um, and your acquisition costs uh, go down. So that's the easy thing, right? What, and so, OK, um, I'm going to step back. We have 60 sales reps at HubSpot, 6-0 salespeople at HubSpot out of 180. Very sales and marketing driven organization. Uh, that's partly what's fueled that growth. So we woke up earlier uh, about a month and a half ago, uh, and we did a number of things. Uh, we did some surveys, and we had, did some soul searching, and we said, well, this kind of sucks. And it sucks because not that we're not selling, not that we have, you know, we like our salespeople, they're just fine. Um, the issue is that we didn't believe that the path that we were headed on. You know, we want to build a multi-billion dollar business. The path that we're headed down was going to create a $250 million business, a $500 million, not something exceptional that our grandkids are going to talk about someday. Uh, so we made a radical change. Like up until last month, HubSpot would hire three new sales reps a month to drive the sales velocity, drive the sales growth, which required marketing spend to drive more leads in. We produce content. It's all mostly inbound marketing. Uh, and we put that to zero. And we said, we are not going to grow sales and marketing anymore. Period. And we're going to take all the cash we would have spent on sales and marketing, and we're going to pour it, pour it into product and into experience. And we think that's the right thing to do. And we had to convince 60-person sales team that, by the way, we're not growing sales uh, marketing. We're not going to grow marketing. The company, the board, the investors, a bunch of people um, that we're going to take a hit next year in terms of revenue projection. Um, so our revenues, well. If you ask me, they'll answer, but otherwise I'm not. Uh, so. 
All right, so that the idea is um, invest in the product because it works, because it's the one thing that essentially you don't get those trade-offs um, in terms of other things in the, in, the, in the system breaking. The other thing that was uh, not obvious to us that we learned was there's a difference between making customers happy and making happy customers. So the making customers happy, so if I got up into, in a, and I had a company meeting relatively recently, uh, like a week ago, wow, feels like a lifetime ago, um, where we announced some of this new news, and it's like, oh, here's what we're doing, we're not gonna invest in sales and marketing, uh, and, and what I said was, we don't want to focus on making customers happy, because what that connotates when I say make customers happy is like, okay, well, sales and marketing does this over here, and then they kind of, some number of customers show up, we have 3,200 of them now, and then it's product and engineering and support and all those folks that are then responsible, quote unquote, for making the customers that we have happy. That is not the right answer. The right answer is the entire purpose of the business, the entire purpose of the business is to produce happy customers. That's the output. This is not something you do after the fact and say, oh, we've got these customers, now what do we do to make them happy and keep them happy and we invest in product? It starts from first exposure, it starts from marketing all the way on through sales and everything. And so everybody in the company needs to be thinking about, is what I am doing contributing to the raw output, the raw goal of the company, which is to manufacture, manufacture happy customers. Don't think about customer happiness as a kind of subsequent thing that product and support worry about. Um, everybody should be thinking about producing happy customers. Uh, this I've talked about, um, I'm gonna talk about a little bit more uh, because of all the things that we've done at HubSpot, and I, we have a bunch of these little business hacks, like little tricky little things that we do that we look back on and say, wow, that was kind of smart of us, that was clever. Uh, this is on our top five list, and it's on our top five, and I ask people, it's like, oh yeah, well, we've what do you think worked at HubSpot that you thought was uh, particularly clever or brilliant? Um, and all modesty aside, um, the, um, they came back with this. And so what this is, we have a number at HubSpot uh, called the Customer Happiness Index, called Chi. And we've had it since month three. So it's been a long time that we, like, we came up with this relatively early on. And it's a geeky way to measure how happy customers are. And it's a number from zero to 100 that measures the probability that any given customer, given the option to cancel, will still be a customer next month. So we can go through, and we do, go through all 3,200 customers and we measure the happiness index. And the reason this is important, which I didn't get a chance to talk about last time, uh, now looking back on it, is not because it's important to know and that's important, obviously the number is immensely valuable and we can talk about all the ways that HubSpot uses this one number. But the biggest value of Qi uh, is its simplicity. The fact that it's a single number that ties to not profits, profits would be great, right? You want financial numbers or whatever, but it's hard to hug a dollar, right? I mean, it's just, it's hard to get employees all riled up and say, yes, I want the P&L to go up by 7% next month or next quarter. Yes, they need to care at some point and we're all, uh, in a positive way, red-blooded capitalists. But the nice thing about the customer happiness index is we can look across groups and say, oh, by the way, here are the 60 sales reps, um, here are the new people, here are the ones that have been around for a while, and we measure the average customer happiness index for every single sales rep. Like, okay, are you selling happy customers? If you're not selling happy customers, you're doing something wrong. Your job is to produce happy customers at the sales point, right, all the way through. We look at marketing channels. When we sell through, an uh, inbound legion through our blog, if we get a customer through that channel versus that channel, does that produce happier customers or less happy customers? We look at our support team. If someone talks to these three people versus those three people, are they more or less happier, essentially? And the idea is to have this single number that you can adjust over time because what goes into the number changes 
probably like every four to six months. And for ours, it'll probably be different for you, although, um, so the three that kind of it boiled down to for us was frequency of use. If they use the product um, every day, every week, they're more happy than if they're just not using the product every two months. Uh, breadth of use, how much of the product are they using? Is it just one feature? Or are they using seven things? Uh, sticky features, and this was the key one. This was the one I didn't talk about last week, uh, last year, is that there are certain features you will find that have an exceptionally high correlation to happiness. That says people that use this feature, even if they only log in once a week, they behave as if they're logging in 17 times a day. They have the same pattern because there's something about that particular feature that causes them to stick. And the weird thing is you won't know what that feature is. Your product management group won't know what that feature is. Your founder, like, you won't know until you actually sit down and measure it. You'll in try and intuit it, uh, but you won't really know. Uh, so my advice is, even if it's coarse, you're logging all this data anyway. Uh, you're, most of you are probably running uh, subscription business, uh, hosted software of some sort. Uh, log all the data and try and measure and try and get better at it over time. It's a very iterative process, um, and it works wonders across the company. If I could just point back to one thing that says what made HubSpot tick, uh, this is way, way, way high on the list. Um, so I'd encourage you to do that. The other hack that we did, um, so in my first startup, we had this uh, in all of our management meetings um, and founder meetings, we had an empty chair in the room that was a designated chair for the customer. And we would literally pretend there was a customer in that chair when making decisions. And so it's like, okay, if we came up with something as uh, David was saying, it's like, oh, if the nickel stands right on its edge and you have to make a choice, how do you decide which way you're gonna fall, right? Because we make these decisions all the time. They're non-trivial decisions. Do we raise prices? Do we lower prices? Do we do this feature or that feature? Um, it's very helpful, as I found it very helpful in the first startup to actually have that. It's like, oh, well, what if we had a customer here that was savvy, that we trusted, that let's say had a stake in the company, what would they say? What would their vote be? And so at HubSpot, we took this uh, one step further. Um, so we actually have a stuffed bear, and she's, her name is Molly, uh, because we have marketing personas called Marketing Mary and owner Ollie, and she's Molly. Uh, so we she goes to all board meetings, all management meetings, and then any other meeting that someone wants to invite her, they can go. But she's required to hit quorum, essentially, for board meetings and management meetings. Uh, not a meeting will go by, not a single one, where someone will not pause and say, that's bullshit. What would Molly say, essentially? Um, and that works, because what ends up happening is if you think about it, it's going to sound cheesy, because it is. Uh, but it actually works. Like You can have really, like, really, really smart people like, debate things for two hours, and it becomes crystal clear sometimes, like, well, yeah, there's nothing in it for the customer. Like, we, Molly would vote no on this particular thing. And so if we're just, if we're evenly split, let's go with the customer, right? So anyway, um, so that hack turns out that it works. It's a very simple thing to do. Um, we like it. I'm not suggesting uh, that you give customers some sort of veto right, right? That's says they get to control everything that you do. You're the software business. Part of the challenge that you deal with is that customers are often very, very good at identifying their problem, not necessarily good at identifying solutions to those problems. Um, uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm not suggesting that they have a veto right, but they, just like everybody else on your management team, they're going to be wrong. They're going to be opinionated. Uh, pretend like they're actually there. What would they say? Um, at least let them be heard. Uh, the other thing that we've learned is, um, so back, and I think most things now include batteries uh, this day and age, but I grew up in a time where that was not the case. Uh, and so you would get a gift on Christmas Day, and you open it, and you're all excited. 
uh, and like the thing didn't have its like batteries not included, um, and so you couldn't like that moment of happiness that was possible just doesn't happen. It's like wow, crap, that kind of sucks. And I'm from India, and so we, anyway, so we don't buy batteries. It's like, there's, the answer in an Indian family is, there are always batteries somewhere. We just have to look hard enough to find them. We don't buy new batteries, um, which defies the laws of physics because someone has to buy them at some point. But anyway, um, so my mom's answer is like, there are batteries in the house somewhere. Don't, don't buy any more batteries. Um, but the lesson here from a software business perspective um, goes into this notion of uh, services. So I'm a Deep down inside, however many layers you look, I'm a product guy. I just am. And there's a very simple reason for that. The margins are better. Right? I can write a piece of software one time, sell it to 1,000, 10,000, a million people, and my cost of delivery is relatively low. You guys all get this, right? It's simple. That's why we don't like services. It's like if I, if I had the choice between the two, I would sell product, 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 because the margins are great. Uh, one thing we have learned is that uh, not I think services sometimes get a bad reputation. I'm going to give you some anecdotal um, evidence here. So let's assume right now the HubSpot is measuring, which we are, uh, chi for customers, right? So we know what their happiness is. We don't have to wait for them to cancel. We can actually tell you with relatively good precision not only how many customers are going to cancel next month based on the patterns of usage of the software, but which ones they are, right? It's like, oh, you have a chi of 22. You don't know this yet, but you're unhappy, and you're going to cancel 14.2 days from now or something like that, right? It's, um, <laughs> Uh, and so what we've learned, essentially, is that, so we have a services, so services represent 7% of HubSpot's revenue. We don't spend a lot of time, and it's a break-even unit within the company. So we don't try to make profits, and we don't try and lose money. We essentially solve it for break-even. But a very interesting thing happens uh, when you look at services from a business perspective, a software business perspective. Uh, and here's what happened at HubSpot. So we're like, okay, well, you know, we don't really like services all that much. It drives the margin down because on some portion of our business, even though it's relatively small, we make zero margin. And that kind of, if you average out into our gross margin for the entire company, goes down as a result of having some portion of our business that's 0%. Um, as it turns out, that was the wrong way to look at it. And here's why. So the way we look at it, uh, looked at it was, oh, well, we charge this much. We charge, I think it's $125 an hour for our services people. Right? So we don't give away services for free. And they help train and onboard customers and bring them up to speed. And a customer will spend between four to eight hours uh, with a service person at HubSpot. Uh, it's, it's paid support, essentially. And at first, we thought, oh, it's a break-even business because we can look at the $125. We know what our fully loaded costs are. We know what the employee salaries are for the people that work in that team. And we're like, oh, it's break-even. As it turns out, it's not break-even. Because what it doesn't capture, the, oh, this is the revenue coming in the door, it does not capture or did not capture the increase in lifetime value. That says, because we, we, did this, we did the research. We sat down and looked at our data and said, oh, you know we're going to spend a month or two where we don't, we don't provide any kind of onboarding services. Right? We've got all this documentation, the software, let's see what happens. Because before, it's like every single customer that signed out at HubSpot would have some human help them for between four and eight hours. And it was sold as part of the product. And so we retracted that for a little while. Say, hey, let's see what happens if we don't have services. As it turns out, absence of services led to much unhappier customers. Well, that seems reasonable. It's like, okay, well, lots of people don't know what they're doing. This inbound marketing stuff is new. The product's not that easy, although we try. And as it turns out, so we measured the actual happiness index lift, which we know is correlated to churn, which we know how to calculate the economic value. So we know what every hour that we spend on services, we know the increase in lifetime value. That says these customers are now going to say, stay 7.2 months longer as a result of their increase in happiness, as a result of us having spent the time. We have the data. And so then we took it the, took it the other way. It's like, oh, we've been spending four hours per customer. What happens if we increase it to eight hours? Our customers even happier 
The answer is yes. Yet happier. More time we spend, it seems that they're even, even happier. And obviously, there is a limit to this. I'm not suggesting that you spend an entire lifetime with the customer. There's a point at which that system breaks. But the larger message here is that uh, question the assumptions around people. Like, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, we tried that too. Uh, we tried that and yes and no. So we tried it and we almost decided to do it. The question is, is it so valuable that you should just give it away for free because of the increase in lifetime value? The challenge that we found was that, so when we have these consulting sessions, we have four hour sessions that um, a, human, a very, very smart human on our end uh, talks to the customer and gets them up to speed on, on marketing and the software and things like that. What we learned was our hit rate of actually scheduling time with the customer uh, went down when it was free because they didn't value it. When they paid for it, if they paid $500 for four hours of consulting, by God, they were going to consume their four hours of consulting. So the, the way we look at it um, is that anything we can do to guarantee ourselves that they will actually take the benefit of, of the services, we're all for that. So it's, I'm, I'm, we're happy, like there's a margin that we could actually lower prices or do something. Uh, but anyway, so it's, it's worked very well for us. So. Uh, by the way, I'm, like, I'm the type of person, like, I don't like humans all that much. If there was a way to build a multi-billion dollar business out of my basement, not hire anybody ever, I would do that. Um, as it turns out, that's really hard. Uh, I, I've tried. It's really, really hard. Um, it takes people. Uh, so we'll talk. I mean, we, we're doing a bunch of things at HubSpot to kind of drive the kind of... So once you have this customer happiness index, by the way, then you can run lots and lots of different experiments. Lots of experiments, uh, some of which we talked about. You can also say, well... What happens if we go to, instead of having this one-on-one -on -one consulting, what if we go to like some online chat-based, video-based, content-based model? What impact does that have? And we can kind of calculate that. You can, it's like, oh, it's going to cost us $50,000 to produce this video or do this thing. And we can actually measure the true ROI because we know roughly quickly, within a week or two, uh, what the uh, impact was on, on happiness, which is, once again, correlated very, very uh, well with lifetime value. The other thing I learned in the last year, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so we have and what was the uh, very positive. So it's interesting. Uh, I, I, I was dubious, by the way, on this particular experiment. I'm like, there's no way that humans are going to sit and watch something versus actually talking to a human. And, and the, we don't have, the sample size is not large enough to be, uh, for us to have confidence in it yet. But the early data suggests that the, the customer happiness index for those that go through that one-to-many process within one customer segment is actually marginally higher and, and we're trying to dig into why that is because it makes no intuitive sense. It's like, why wouldn't you want to talk to a human uh, if you could? Uh, but it's, so far, it's positive. It's, it's working out. Only within a certain, we have, yeah, only within a certain segment, but it's, it's working. Uh, so we're going to invest more there. The other thing that works is if you have unhappy, let's say you had this chi and you knew exactly which customers are going to cancel, and you knew that if you can like, keep those customers, or lifetime value is, let's say, like in HubSpot's case, twenty dollars to $30,000, call them <laughs> and say, hey, I think you're unhappy. What can I do to make you more happy? And that is essentially the script. We have an entire team of people at HubSpot called customer success managers that do nothing but they run the report, they look at the bottom, like lowest happy, lowest chi customers and call them and see if they can convert them. It's like, what can we do to make it like, it's clearly our fault, what do we do? What can we do to help essentially? And we'll do things like give away another four hours, we'll do all sorts of stuff to make a, a customer happy because we know what the value is. Um, and the question you would ask if, you, um, if I weren't talking so fast is, oh yeah, but those customers that you save, do they ultimately end up canceling anyway? The answer is, uh, yeah, about a third-ish will eventually cancel because there's something like intrinsic about that relationship that just wasn't working. And just us calling them and saving them and making them happier sometimes was temporary. But in other cases, it worked, so it's still profitable. Yeah. Does it match up with the experience? Like, if you have more customers and you get to be a 
It's a great question. So the question is, by not investing in the sales team, uh, doesn't the, the overall experience get worse because you have fewer salespeople? And we have a very consultative, kind of friendly, I think, um, relatively friendly sales process. Uh, so, so my answer there is nothing at HubSpot or any, in any of your companies is forever. Everything is one grand experiment that we happen to be this far along in the process at the particular point in time. So our decision to stop hiring sales reps and invest it all in product will endure for at least six to nine months. That's the current plan. And then we'll look at the numbers and say, okay, well, we have certain goals that we want to get to in terms of customer happiness and just like, you know, exit surveys. And we want to get to a certain churn rate. It's like cancellation. And once we get there, we're like, okay, now we feel like we've kind of tweak the engine, the car is doing relatively well now, it's not shaking as much anymore, let's go faster um, and, and go back into kind of sales and marketing mode. So it's that, it's that balance, and it's like every, every quarter there's like a little thing that's like, oh yeah, we did this over here, and we, uh, uh, this broke over there, let's go fix that, and you kind of, this is kind of iterative optimization process. So I fully expect that we'll go back into getting more salespeople and, um, and invest more in there, yeah. Uh, because we're geeky, um, and because we don't like multiple variables, we don't like two experiments at the same time that might impact each other, because we're so smart that then people pick whichever experiment and data that they like that kind of validates their thinking. And we like to point to it's like, okay, well, if this is the only thing we changed, and life sucked, clearly there's got to be some correlation, right? It's not, not always definitive, but... Yeah, so the question is, uh, so HubSpot's got a bunch of cash in the bank, we raised a bunch of capital, and does not, doesn't that give us the opportunity to run more of these tests and do more of these experiments? And the answer is yes, uh, that's one of the upsides to having capital, and it's, it's hard as a bootstrap um, to, to run a lot of tests, right, because you're looking for revenues, you're looking for customers, you can't say, well, we're going to turn off the revenue spigot for two months and see what happens, because we're curious, <laughs> let's see. Um, as it turns out, employees don't like that sometimes. Um, I've done that before in my prior startup. Um, but so yes, the cash does help there. So my so my message to you on, on the capital raising is that if you have if you have relatively clear, precise uh, visibility into your funnel, into your overall business process, and what the economic drivers look like. For instance, we can tell you here's how much we pay a sales rep. Here's the month that we will become cash flow break even because we know how much they sell, we know what the customers are worth, we know how they can, and as the data grows, we become increasingly confident. It's a very predictable business. So if you look at that curve, that curve, the, the sales curve that I showed you, the reason it's so smooth is not an accident, is because we solved for that curve. It's like, okay, we want revenue to be X next month, and the month after that, and the month after that, and we tweak the business to get to that curve. Um, and so if you have a business where you know that pouring a dollar into the business from a sales and marketing or whatever perspective yields $2, $3, $4 of lifetime value, raise money. Raise money uh, just enough to, to run the experiments that you need to, because you should be pouring more water into that machine. You're producing cash. Investors love that. Investors love that. Um, if you can put a dollar in and get $3 out, um, that's a... Perfectly good reason to raise money, by the way. Uh, I'm an angel investor. I've done 14. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> All right. Um, and this actually, uh, Kathy Sierra spoke a, a brilliant speech um, presentation last year in uh, San Francisco. And one thing she said, uh, which uh, resonated with me because it's, uh, I think it happens to be true, was that, is that we shouldn't think about being producers of X. We should be thinking about being producers of brilliant users of X. So in this, let's say it was HubSpot as the example. So I would say HubSpot 
we don't make marketing software, we make marketing superstars. Her example was if you're a digital camera person, you don't make the best digital camera, you make better photographers. And it seems squishy. It seems like, well, yeah, but don't we really just produce software and sell that? Uh, yes, you do. But as it turns out, as a kind of motivating, aligning, sounds philosophical, it works. Because it's that kind of customer alignment thing. It's like if you're looking to, the software is the vehicle. And Seth said this, it's not about the code. The code is not the point. The customers are the point. The market is the point, essentially. It's like, what are you doing to produce better users of X? So we want to produce a million better marketers, essentially. That's our mission. That's what we want to do. Software is how we get there, uh, but that's what we want to do. And that works. Uh, the other thing that we've learned um, is this notion of simple. So when we started the company, uh, our kind of whole idea was to have this kind of simple, easy, and integrated platform for marketers because there were uh, much better products than each of our individual. For instance, we have a content management system. WordPress is much better. We have an analytics tool. Google Analytics is much better. We have, for everything that HubSpot does, when we have like 19 apps or features, uh, there are venture-backed, in some cases publicly traded, phenomenally successful, great companies doing just that. And you would think it is completely idiotic for any entrepreneur worth their salt to ever do something like that. Where it's like, why would you do that? Why would you have something that competes with WordPress and Google Analytics all together, of all things? Uh, and the answer is actually um, inspired by Apple. And uh, Clayton Christensen uh, from Harvard Business School writes about this a lot. Uh, and talks about it a lot, but the idea is that if you're going after massive opportunities, uh, you should not be trying to take market away from your competition. If the opportunity is big enough, there are enough non-consumers out there that you should be selling to. Look for the blue ocean. Pick your cliche or uh, phrase of choice based on which business school uh, book you read uh, this or last year. But the, but the concept is actually uh, very, very simple. Um, so what Apple did is like when Apple released the iPod, they did not say, we're gonna create the best MP3 device with the highest gigabytes of storage, with the uh, you know, best cost performance ratio, whatever they said, we're going to go after the non-consuming mere mortals that are not enjoying digital music, but should be. And they asked, and this is, and Apple's been brilliant at this for their entire, well, most of their entire history, as long as Jobs was uh, in, in, in charge, is around what do we have to do? Apple asked themselves the questions, like what do we have to do to get those millions of people that are sitting on the sidelines that should be enjoying digital music, because it's a better way to enjoy music, what do we do, what do we have to do to get them into the game? And as it turns out, uh, more often than not, when you ask yourself the question, what do you have to do, the answer is not build a better X. The answer is build a simpler X. What's keeping people out is not some feature. What's keeping people out is because it's too hard to get into the game. So what Apple did is said, oh, we're going to build a simple device. We're going to have partnerships with the content producers. We're going to have this network, essentially. And we're going to have this way you can download songs. And we'll take over all the copyright. And we're going to do this. And it's going to allow millions of people to enjoy digital music. And so as you go back and you think about your businesses, I think there are, in just about every industry, there are always opportunities, blue oceans of unserved customers that should be enjoying whatever you have to offer, but aren't yet. And that's a much happier market to work in. It's frustrating sometimes, but it's a much, much happier market to work in. Um, so I would suggest that you think about that. It's like, what can you do to simplify? And if you did that, um, like Southwest didn't go after people that were flying on Delta. There's all sorts of examples of great successful companies that essentially went after a broad, entirely new market and took new people and got them into consuming whatever it was that they were uh, offering. Um, the other thing we've learned at HubSpot, um, and this, this is a culture hack, 
is transparency. Um, so we have this, I'm gonna go on a, a, a short story. Is uh, about a year, year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, my co-founder and I were chatting, uh, as we do every now and then, uh, and, and so we said, okay, well, you know, we're, we're kind of growing, I think we're about 70, 80 people, uh, and we should, we should see whether the, I mean, the employees are happy or not. We, like, we do customer surveys all the time, but let's check in with the employees, because we'd never done that before. We'd never ask anybody in the companies, like, are you happy, essentially? And so we did. Um, and we said, okay, well, let's go do the uh, customer survey, let's, I mean, the employee survey, let's ask people. And we did a net promoter score, which is essentially two questions. Uh, question number one is, on a scale of one to 10, would you recommend HubSpot to a colleague? Would you recommend that they work here? That's, that's the question. And the question number two is why, which is the kind of qualitative, uh, subjective side of it. So we learned two things. Um, one is employees were happy, like they were exceptionally happy. And one of the things that bothered us, quite candidly, is that our employees were happier than our customers. Hence this take dollars out of sales and marketing, put them into product and create happier customers. Uh, but the em employees were really happy and the answer to the question of what made them happy, uh, the answer was the other employees. It's like, I love the people that I work with. They're really, really smart, they care, all those kinds of things, sounds cliched. And that's not the point of the story. The point of the story was, um, so then little light bulb goes off uh, with my co-founder and I were like, oh, we have a culture. That's the first time the word culture had ever been mentioned in the history of the company, ever. Like it had never been spoken before. Uh, it's like, oh, we have a culture and it sounds like it's pretty good. Um, it's working, people like working here and we're producing revenue. So, and our whole job essentially is to try not screw it up. Like HubSpot's doing well, let's try and manage not to screw it up. And one of those ways not to screw it up is we've got this culture, we probably should try and do something to preserve it. And then, so we look at each other like, well, what is it? We're like, I don't know. I don't know, I've never dealt with this before, um, and he hadn't either. And, uh, and since I'm the one that likes people the least, I was a designated person to figure it out in terms of employee culture and human interaction and, um, and kind of codify what the culture was. Uh, and so we went and asked people and figured out. One of the things, um, this has worked really well, and we're big on this one, is uh, transparency. So we identified our cultural attributes, I'm not gonna bore you with all of them. One of them uh, is transparency. So it's on the list of things, and we are transparent to a fault especially within the employee base. So every employee at HubSpot, and we use uh, Scott, we use Atlassian, by the way, we have like 4,000 pages and tens of thousands of comments uh, every day, every employee is on the wiki uh, at HubSpot. But the information that's available on the wiki is how much capital we raised, what price we raised it at, what the strike price was, uh, how much cash is in the bank, literally the bank balance in the company, how much money we burned last month, how long we will last, how long is the runway? Down to, I mean like literally, like everything is there. Everything we present to board meetings, all the things that investors know, every single employee up and down the chain knows that at HubSpot. The only thing we don't share, which we're trying, my co-founder, is, is salary information of the employees. Absent that, just about everything is open or compensation more broadly, yes. Um, we do say that. Because essentially, then everyone's like a board member and needs to have similar privacy. Yeah. Um, so we, we like employees to use their discretion. Um, so, like the financial stuff, and we're not, we're not thinking like being a public company yet, so we actually share more stuff than we probably should, uh, which is okay. We'll probably have to change that someday. Uh, but we haven't really worked. There's no like formal policy that says, look, here's the stuff you share, here's the stuff that you don't share, except I think the board meetings. There's something where. I think like five years from now or something like we go public, they're gonna like the board meeting minutes go into the, the IPO docs or something like that. But I think other than that, 
most of it's relatively fair game, but they use their discretion. It's like, okay, if you think it'll help or whatever, it's just, you know, germane to the conversation, um, it's okay. But, um, but that's been very helpful for us for a couple of uh, reasons. One is, uh, quote, uh, our VP of engineering has used in the past, which is, uh, light is the best disinfectant. As it turns out, management, broadly, uh, including me, does much fewer stupider things when those stupid things are publicly accessible to everyone. <laughs> like, really stupid stuff happens behind closed doors. You make all sorts of decisions, right? It's like, oh, we're, we're going to do this, we're going to change it. And, and we've tried this, by the way. And so we, and I, uh, you would think we'd learn by now. So, we, you know, my co-founder and I will put an article out there. It's like, you know, we, we met the management team. We had this long all-day offsite or whatever, and here's what we're looking at or whatever. And we'll have, like, eight pages of comments within three hours. So it's like, that's the stupidest thing we've ever heard, uh, kind of comments, essentially. Clearly, they're good at holding back their opinion um, and care about uh, yeah, their jobs. But. but how did you manage to create a culture where people did that? Um, yeah, so I like to jokingly say, when we initially introduced transparency as one of the things, um, it was because not being transparent, my, I, I call my co-founder lazy uh, for not being able to like, make stuff up. Uh, and transparency actually consumes much less calories, because then you don't have to decide what do we disclose or not disclose. Like, just put it all out there. Uh, we'll work it out. Um, so along the same lines, in terms of culture, one of the hacks that we put in last year, which is controversial, uh, so we had this uh, meeting um, of uh, the exec team at HubSpot, and we were, let's see, 80-ish people, and uh, we didn't have a number of things at HubSpot. Uh, we don't have a director of HR, or anybody with the word HR, or person, or any kind of creative title. There's like nobody responsible for employee happiness at uh, HubSpot. Uh, yet we were voted best company to work for in Boston, beat Google this year, um, so it's, something's working. Uh, but one of the things we did last year as a, as a kind of culture hack was, so we had this meeting and our CFO comes to us and says, guys, uh, one thing we need, uh, we need a, vac a vacation form and a system to track, like, we, like nobody knows what their vacation, like do they get two weeks or four weeks or what's the, how much can they roll over or not roll over and how, like we need to just like define it. He's like, you know, whatever it needs to be, just fine, we can keep it simple or whatever. And so we looked at each other and we're like, well, why do we need to do that? It's like, well, you know, because you know, employees join, they need to know what their, ex well, no. And so we decided our vacation policy at HubSpot, literally, is we have no vacation policy at HubSpot. We don't track it, you don't, nobody approves it, you take the time you need, and that's it. And our hope is, uh, in both directions, that people don't abuse the system. And so the common argument that comes back is, well, my God, that will never work because you're always going to have, there's a normal distribution curve of whatever. It's like, okay, if you've got people that you're worried are going to abuse a no vacation policy policy, you hired wrong. Fix it. Like, if that ever, ha my hope is that doesn't happen. Uh, but, and, and my uh, you know, co-founder's kind of argument in support of this no vacation policy policy was, so if you look at, uh, who watches Mad Men? TV show, great show. If those of you not, you're missing out. You should watch it. Go back to season one, work your way through. Um, it's a great show. So Mad Men said, I think in the 50s and 60s about uh, Madison Avenue Firm. What's interesting, so we all watch Mad Men. It's obviously a, a little bit of a character of, of those times, but we watch it's like, my God, I can't believe they ran businesses that way. Like, you know, drinking vodka in the afternoon and like the mistreatment of women in the workforce and all sorts of just like stuff that would never, and we look back on it, it's like, my God, they were idiots, right? I mean, that was just stupid. How, how, how could they not have known? Um, so the question we asked ourselves is, 10 years from now, if someone did a documentary on businesses as they were running them right now, what will people make fun of then? What are the things that we're doing now that are gonna look idiotic 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Because uh, we're hoping to build a business that outlasts us, essentially, that's the goal, um, that will be around after we're dead. And so we want people to point back and say, okay, well, they did, at least they questioned it, if nothing else, and we still do stupid things. Um, 
some of them uh, deliberate and conscious. But so anyway, so that was the Novik, and it's and we're still alive, by the way. We're still making our revenue numbers. No one has abused it. It's I'm still standing. I still have a job. Um, yep. Question. Going back to uh, transparency. Yep. Why not go that one more step and just have it be public for non-employees or anything? Um, very good question. Because we haven't been able to come up with what's the upside. So like on the employee transparency, I can relatively pretty well argue why it's important for all the employees to know essentially uh, what's going on um, because it makes them better decision makers, they get, feel more bought in. Uh, I'm not sure that just as a red-blooded capitalist where the upside of actually sharing it publicly is worth it. So we, what we do take like our customer numbers, essentially our revenue numbers are out there. Uh, the fact that we're doing the sales, we have our big co uh, customer conference tomorrow, so we're pretty transparent, but just not to the same degree. Yeah, um, but that might change. We'll see. All right. Um, let's see, we're down to eight-ish minutes. Uh, we're doing pretty well. So um, let's talk about free a little bit in terms of freemium. It's all the rage, especially in software businesses or whatever. Um, and if you're doing a freemium model, by the way, you know one thing is like don't forget the meum part. The, it's, it's not just about the free. Uh, I want to just say one quick thing about freemium. Uh, so we, HubSpot doesn't have a classic freemium model, but we have lots of free stuff, uh, content, free tools, or whatever, but it's not the core product yet. Um, but in talking to a bunch of uh, entrepreneurs, which I do a fair amount, one of the things that troubles me um, is that too many people, like one of the traps that um, we fall into as business people is that once you have freemium, and you have this, when you're making decisions, you start talking about these kind of triggers and traps, and it's like, what can I do to cause a higher percentage of people to move from free to paid? And that's a legitimate question to be asking. It's like, what can I do to make more money, right? It's like, oh, only 0.2% of our, our users are, are paid customers or whatever, and the industry average is 2.2%. How do we make that better? Uh, and that's okay. What's not okay, though, is the way in which you kind of frame those decisions. So it should not be, like, where can I lay these little triggers, these little wires in the jungle that, it, like, oh, I was doing this and now I tripped and I'm now a paying customer, I have to be, right? It's like, so the idea is not to trick the user base. The idea is to create or kind of manufacture value in a way that your customer triumph results in them switching to whatever you want. And this applies to upgrades as well. And this is going to sound philosophical, but there's a big difference between laying little trip wires in the sand. It's like, aha! We got you. Like, like you were like at this and now you're that and you need this feature and the company that I think is, and I love the company by the way, I love the company, um, salesforce.com. Uh, salesforce.com, brilliantly successful. My hope is you don't have to do this to be brilliantly successful, um, remains to be seen, but they're diabolical about those traps and tripwires. So if you, you can start as a Salesforce customer paying $500 a year or something crazy like that and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and there's this big ass nonlinear shift and it's like, and they kind of sort of knew. It's not, it wasn't an accident, by the way, that you just happened, like, as you were meandering through the woods of Salesforce usage, and then you fall over this one little thing, and now all of a sudden you're paying $20,000. It's just, uh, it's crazy. So they're diabolical. Um, my suggestion to you is you don't have to be that. Uh, you should be thoughtful in terms of where you, uh, where you know you're creating value and kind of associate the, the price the customer pays or the conversion to, to paid. Um, so I'm not a brand guy. Uh, but I like this quote that I overheard at a, I was at a, what, what was a conference at MIT of some sort and it was at a table away from me so I can't even attribute the source but uh, it's about, brand is what people say about you after you leave the room. 
essentially. So what's your impression? That's like the layperson's attempt to describe brand. And where it helps um, is it makes everything else easier. Like Dropbox, so I asked Drew, by the way. Um, so I had uh, drinks, he was in town last week. He's the only, he's one of five people that I will cancel dinner with my wife in order to have dinner with Drew from Dropbox. Um, and my wife knows it, and she encourages it because she's a user, and she's like, well, ask him why they haven't built this feature yet. Why can't I do shared folders? Um, which I did, and they're coming, by the way, for the record. Um, uh, you didn't hear that from me, because I think that's still confidential. But, uh, so I asked Drew, um, and I'd asked him this before, which is, Drew, I totally get that the reason Dropbox is so phenomenally successful is the product, because he's told me this a hundred times. It's like, it's the product. Darmesh, it's the product, just product, product. It's like, build a brilliant product, solve the problem, build the product. And so I asked him this time, because uh, I'm slightly smarter now, um, and I'm like, Drew, and I'm very crafty in the way I kind of structure this question. It's like, next to the product, what's the next most important thing uh, that contributed to your success? Um, and his answer was, and Scott's going to talk about this, um, I think, from, uh, I know, actually, from Atlassian, is don't screw the customer. Like, that's it. It's like when we sit down and make decisions or whatever, Drew says, essentially, they do not make decisions in the company where the company benefits and the customer suffers. That's it. Like, don't do those things, essentially. So after product, get the product right, then secondly, essentially, solve for that customer happiness. Um, that's going to sound squishy, but it works. It works, um, anyway. It, uh, so, down the kind of meandering flaws. How am I doing so far? Is it all right? Everybody? Okay. This, I, I should have put an applause slide in if I was going to be that obvious about it. But, um, okay. So, so, the be a good egg uh, thing is around what I call the, the kind of path of truth and justice. Uh, so, at HubSpot, we believe that we are on the path of truth and justice because we believe in this inbound marketing and stopping spam and direct mail and killing trees and harming kittens and all those things. Uh, and it's, and it's true, so we really believe that we're actually making the world a better place. But I'm going to posit to you that um, today, versus let's say 10, 15 years ago, in, or let's say in the 80s or 90s, if you were in the software business, it was sort of okay, not okay as in like ethically okay, but profitable to be somewhat evil. Like Oracle, a bunch of relatively successful software companies. Um, uh, um, my apologies to someone from Oracle's in the room, but, but the supremely successful software company, and it worked, right? And the reality is you had all sorts of kind of misbehaviors because the market didn't punish bad behavior that well because we didn't have an opportunity to. So you had like drive-by sales, essentially like, oh yeah, here's a $600,000 CRM implementation or whatever that never saw the light of day, very aggressive, sales, like lots of bad things. And my argument to you now is that um, if you're really looking to build the next multi-billion dollar business, bad behavior gets talked about now and it will crush you because of the internet. People will talk, like people can search on HubSpot sucks in 30 seconds and find out how many people think HubSpot sucks. Every, like it's, you can't hide anymore. It's like, it's not, customers don't have to go to a conference to figure out like, oh yeah, well, well we tried that product from that company or whatever and that kind of sucked. It, it's, it's all open right now. So I think the red-blooded capitalist right thing to do is to put yourself on the path of truth and justice and, and solve something where you can say, well, I'm actually solving a problem. My customers are happy, I care about that. And my hope is that that leads to a multi-billion dollar company someday. And my answer is that it maximizes your odds. If it, if it were me, um, that's what I would do. Yeah, so, so the question is what about Salesforce? Um, so sales, this is, so the what about Salesforce, of all the things that keep me up at night at HubSpot, um, 
uh, high on my list of questions that keep me up at night at HubSpot is the what about Salesforce, not from a competitive perspective, but so if you look at the practices of Salesforce, I talked about their kind of pricing and it's relatively clever and diabolical or whatever. Uh, and I've met with at least half a dozen people from the original exec team at Salesforce. Sat down, talked to them, and it's like, oh yeah, look, what would you guys do about this and that? And they're very transparent, as it turns out, very uh, open company. But there's a bunch of stuff at Salesforce that I just fundamentally don't agree with in terms of corporate culture and aggressive sales tactics and all that kind of stuff or whatever. And they built a great product and built a big business. My hope is we don't necessarily have to, and they, I wish them all the success because they did a great damn job, um, laid the groundwork for a lot of us. Uh, but my hope is that the successful software businesses of the next two decades uh, will be kinder, gentler, uh, and more focused on, on customers. So. so I'm gonna close on this note, which is um, as a uh, former bootstrap self-funded entrepreneur, this is my third one, um, is, and there's been lots of kind of discussion around, you know, should we take venture capital, dream big, or whatever, my, my response to you is that dream big and execute small, and what I mean by that is that if you are starting a company, for those of you that are entrepreneurs in the room, um, this will not be, if this is your first one, it will not be your last. It's a genetic flaw, you're gonna do it over and over again. And the way to think about this is that your, your big dream does not have to be embodied in your current company. Your aspirations, like for instance, it's completely okay, completely okay to say, oh, I'm gonna do this bootstrap startup, someone is gonna offer me 15, 20, 25 million dollars, I'm gonna take it. And there are lots of people that argue, it's like, oh, you didn't dream big enough and you should have held on and it was growing and why not take the cash? <laughs> take the cash and here's why, is because the cash funds the next dream. And it's okay, it's like you will have plenty of ideas, I promise, like your issue is not that you don't have ideas, your issue is you have too many. And it's hard to tell the crappy ones from the potentially good ones, um, or the great ones. So, I'm gonna close, take a breath, and I'll take a couple of questions until Neil pulls me off the stage. So, thanks for your time, by the way, this is always fun. Two questions. Yes. So you said you call customers uh, when their chi is low to ask uh, why they're unhappy. How does that then feed back if you give them like free stuff or a discount or whatever? How does that feed back in that number? What sort of system do you have? Okay. Uh, so the question is, so we have this customer success uh, group essentially that talks, uh, calls customers that are low chi. So we track the data. So we're very, like we've got 18 people out of MIT in the team, like we're very data geeky. So everything that happens essentially uh, we try and capture. So we know which customers so we can analyze churn and things like that. So we know that, okay, the happiness of someone that we kind of re-happified, uh, re-delighted, even though they weren't, um, has this kind of behavioral pattern. So we just measure it. And so the, it's still profitable, which is why we still do it. That team is still growing because um, dollar in produces more than dollar out. It's a, it's a good thing for us to do, but it's not as good as we thought it was because there are some intrinsic issues. Like there are some customers that just don't fit the profile. It's like, no matter what we do, we are not going to, there's a reason they're unhappy and some of it's us and we can fix those things, but that's not the majority of the reason. So we have about a third-ish of them that um, we can save, but it doesn't pan out. Like they will be unhappy again in six months or something like that. So, and, we, and we're trying to figure out now from a demographic perspective, what's the profile? What do those customers look like that even though they have a low chi, they're not worth trying to save essentially because it's, um, we're just not the right fit. This is what it comes down to. Right. Way back there. I'm gonna have to go come up here because I can't hear. It would be and should be. Um, so the question is, why, why talk about average revenue per user, not average uh, profit per lifetime, or, or uh, lifetime profit versus lifetime value? And we do. 
The issue is that, uh, so I talk at a lot of startup events or whatever, just the fact that I can talk about revenue in like you're one of us, like a web-based startup or whatever, is like apocryphal, some, some word that's bad, essentially. Um, <laughs> idiotic, that's a simpler word. I should stick with small two-syllable words um, or three-syllable words. So the answer is you should definitely look, if you can, look at lifetime profit, right? Because then you can factor in cost of goods sold. It's like, okay, well, here's uh, what goes into it. So that's the ideal number that you should be measuring. Uh, we use proxies for that, right? And, and the revenue is good enough for us. We're not profitable yet, we'll be next year. Uh, but so, but yeah. And the other thing, in a, in, a, in a software company, the cost of goods sold ends up being not that big a piece of the equation overall. Uh, so rev, it's a relatively good proxy to solve for revenue as long as you're not doing uh, insanely stupid things. But all right. Question number two. Yes. <laughs> what did I do? I'm sorry. Oh, is that question? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm done. Thank you very much for your time.